0: when the weather's changing and it's just getting back to you can feel you can smell the smell of spring in the air getting up in the morning smelling the air knowing you've got game in the afternoon thinking I cannot wait to get in there. it is the most brilliant feeling you almost can't explain how much of a dopamine hit it is
1: Hello, I'm Jim Salverson and this is Football Stories. This is season two of this podcast, which focuses on the stories on the pitch, the people who played the game. If you go back in the timeline, you can find season one, which tells some brilliant stories from the people on the other side of the white line. People like Pete Boyle, who comes up with many of the terrorist chants at Manchester United, or Emi Onura, who's a football historian looking at the history of black players in English football. Fascinating conversations, fascinating podcasts. Go and have a listen to that. But today it is all about Pat Nevin a Chelsea legend. Now, many will know Pat from his work covering football for the BBC up and down the country and his always fair and very reasonable views. But more significantly, he was a great professional footballer who played a dizzying amount of games for Chelsea, for Everton and for Scotland. So dizzying, in fact, that as you'll hear in this podcast, I get the numbers totally wrong at the start of the podcast and he has to correct me. (laughs) I was talking to Pat for the release of his new book, The Accidental Footballer, which is out now, which focuses on his time in the game and his experiences. So most of our conversation focuses on that book, but that's exactly what Football Stories is about. So it suited me fine. Pat Nevin is the author of today's Football Story. Delighted to have on today's podcast a Scotland legend, a man with over 100 games for Everton, with almost 200 games for Chelsea under his belt, Pat Nevin. How you doing, Pat?
0: Fine, fine. And I'm going to correct you
1: right away. Oh, God. <laughs> Go on, then. That's league games. Okay, um, so how many games is it total if we count everything?
0: I, everyone does that because you always check up on wiki. And that yeah, gives us 245 for uh, Chelsea and well over, I can't remember how many it is for Everton. Quite a few. Anyway.
1: Well, I, I guess it's part of the stuff you've been looking back over over the last few weeks because you've just had your brand new book come out. What's it been like going back and looking over the quite phenomenal career you've had? It was extraordinary
0: because i would never looked back. It's it's like that in football. You have to look at the next game or the next couple of games or next season or look ahead. And the minute you look back, it's almost like the admission of oh, the old days were better. So you you're trained and it's almost Jesuitical, <laughs> and you get to uh, be a footballer that you never look back. So I, I played a whole career, nearly twenty years, never looked back, never checked it, and I ended up doing this these other jobs like an executive role, and then became involved in the media side of it, and then honestly, it was so many years later I thought, "Go write about that. I have to look at it." And I was really surprised, A, about some of the things I'd done, but B, how I thought, because I'd done some diaries so I could look back and then, but see how much fun it actually was writing. I didn't tell anyone was writing, I didn't talk to any publishers. I just thought, "No, I'm going to sit down and write. And I completely lost myself in it. And it was so quick and it just spilled out. And it was an utter joy, so much so that I, I didn't stop. I'm still doing it. I'm still going. <laughs> but it was great fun.
1: You said there were moments that surprised you. Were there actually moments that you look back on pretty significant things that you'd completely forgotten, that it kind of took you back to that time?
0: Oh, yeah, loads of them. <laughs> you know, specifically, I mean, you don't remember all the games. I played something like 850 professional games in my career you won't remember them all. There was no chance at all. And then it surprises you the things that stuck out, you know, the moments that stuck out. Some of them were, you know, really good goals or, you know, massive big games or, you know, making a great goal, that sort of stuff. But some of it was, that wasn't the important parts. The important parts were, I remember meeting a a man walking out of Stamford Bridge. I used to live nearby and I just walked to the ground and back. Mm. Change days for Chelsea players, I can tell you. And they just started chanting to me and he said oh I came out to see you today and it was uh, lovely to see and I enjoyed it and I was entertained and I don't get out much and I went oh really and uh, I went to chat to him further and he walked away that might have been the most important meeting I had in my entire career and I know it sounds odd but I walked the rest of the way home and I thought that's why I'm doing this so that I can entertain people that I may never meet but I can give some joy and I wasn't doing it to make money or to be famous in fact all those things were either secondary or of no interest whatsoever. I did it because I loved it. And it would be a good idea to give a little bit of joy back while I was doing my creative stuff. And that moment stuck with me because there might be other men and women like him that had a great day because, you know, hopefully I've done something that's entertained them. And so it wasn't just the big moments. It was Mm. other moments that that stuck with me that I hadn't thought about for years. And then I thought, wow, yeah, that was kind of important. That changed me.
1: Do you think that's something that's missing from football nowadays, that kind of connection between player and fan? I remember reading Stanley Matthews' autobiography, and he talks about his England debut. And I know Stanley Matthews is a different era to you, (laughs) Pat. I'm not saying it's the same era, but in terms of like he would walk from his house, his terraced house in Stoke to the train station to get the train down from Stoke to London to make his debut on the Wembley pitch. It's the kind of like everyday stuff that modern players don't do. And the further we've gone down the line, the more detached I think modern football is from the people who actually consume that sport and this idea of it being a working man's sport. Do you think football really misses that connection?
0: I actually think it's a choice. I, I know people think it's odd to see it, You don't have to live that life, you know, that rarefied atmosphere and not dealing with society. you're talking about Stanley Matthews, I'm 20, 30 years after him. Mm. The first time I went to Wembley to watch an england Scotland game, I didn't watch, I played, and I got the tube back. Now, everybody else was on the team coach, but I thought, no, no, actually, I live in London, the game's finished, I'll just walk to Wembley Station and get the tube back down to where I lived in West London. And you can actually be quite normal. Now, there are dangers in it to be honest, and it's maybe a wee bit more difficult now with so much media. But in actual fact, if you are sensible and know the certain places where you really shouldn't go, it's too dangerous and they're a bit silly, you actually can live quite a normal life. And, you know, there are players, and I often talk about people like Juan Mata, you live a fairly normal life and go and see normal things and do normal things. So it's not totally a choice, but it's partially a choice. And they're kept away to some degree in that little bubble. And it... It's not just the fact that they can't relate to fans and it's becoming harder and harder for fans to relate to them. They can't relate to reality sometimes. And that's a danger. That's a massive, massive danger. So it's interesting you ask me that question because all the way through the book, you'll say, I mean, I had this argument with all the players. My nickname at Chelsea was weirdo, right? And I was saying to them, no, no, I'm the normal one. You lot are all weird. You don't get it. I'm the normal one. I do normal things. I'm just like everyone else. I'm not trying to be Mr. Big, famous, anything I don't think I'm extra special because I kick a ball. If They thought I was strange, but I honestly deeply believed that I was a wee bit more normal than them because I would live a normal life, or as close to it as I possibly could. And I have come out at the end of it, and I'm, I think, fairly well balanced. And I see some of the damage that's been done to them. And I think I knew that. I was very old-headed when I was younger. And I could see the dangers of, in simple terms, living if you are what you do and you're a footballer and you're famous, it's not going to last forever. One day, it's going to stop. Who are you? Do you know who you are? Do you have to deal with that? Do you have to turn to something else like drugs or drink or whatever to try and find a new you or find that buzz that you thought you were? So I always made sure that football was what I did. It wasn't who I was. And I actually thought maybe it's a wee bit more deep thinking than someone would have considered also thought it was safer and i think it's safer it would be safer for modern players to get that sort of help to understand that you know yeah you kick a ball you make a few quid and you're in the papers and you're in the telly but so what just a bloke
1: (laughs) is that kind of where the title comes from because it's called the accidental footballer your your new book is it kind of the idea that maybe you were wired a little bit differently from your your fellow players
0: very much so i came from a different direction i mean i i doing a degree. I mean, I was at Celtic as a schoolboy. The book actually starts with him saying they're not going to take me on as a pro. And me thinking, I wouldn't have even have said yes if you'd have asked me. But I might go and do my degree. <laughs> I'm not interested. I'm playing at football because I love it, not because I want anything out of it. So I was very happy to stop there. And I did stop there and only get enticed back into it because I loved playing football. That's the bit to get really, really upfront. I adore playing football. I loved it. And... Nothing would have stopped me playing. But I played it for the joy of it, not for anything else. And it's it's hard in the modern world when you see a lot of people talking about you have to push to get to the front and be famous and be the best of the best of the best and all that sort of stuff. I was just doing it because it was joy. Um, And the idea of doing it professionally had actually never occurred to me. I was playing in a boys' Club game some while later and I kind of got spotted playing against Clyde Reserves. And their manager said well, why don't you come play for us? And I said, no, I don't want to be a professional footballer. And I'm doing a degree. And he said, well, you can do both because we're part-time. I went, mm-hmm. And he said, I'll pay you 30 quid a week. And I went, where do you sign? <laughs> <laughs> and because I was a student, I was into my music. How many albums could that buy? Oh, that's all I cared about. So I had a very different beginning. But Even the fact that I was playing part-time with Clyde, it still wasn't in my intention or interest to um, become a full-time professional. In fact... I turned down Chelsea for an entire year because I thought the degree was far more important. It's not a line mm. to say, you I was the accidental football. I tried really hard not to be one. But in the end, a, a number of things happened. Things started going well with Scotland Youth. Ended up going to the European Championships, getting player of the tournament. Ended up having to go to the World Youth Championships, which meant I would miss final exams. So I took that two-year contract with Chelsea. And the total understanding with myself and the authorities that I could come back in two years and finish the degree but much to my shock within a year I was player of the year at Chelsea <laughs> what's getting on here and it's a very 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 and we, we won the league that year to get promoted to the top level and it is a very unusual way of coming into it but mm. I was still doing it in, in and the a dichotomy here and this is a, a very important part I was utterly dedicated to it it's not that I didn't care I loved it and I trained harder than anyone else and I was a distance runner, so I, all that sort of stuff. But I still didn't want to be who I was. So all my mates were musicians or actors or job bin men, you know. I didn't hang about with footballers
1: because mm. I
0: didn't want it to completely and utterly take over my life because I, I could see what it would do to other people and did do to other people.
1: Do you remember what you spent your first £30 wages on? Do you remember what albums you bought with that money? I
0: think I might have to take my girlfriend out to the cinema. <laughs> and uh, I think the first tickets I got for a gig, there was a wee band that had just changed their name. They were called Johnny and the Self-Abusers. And I wanted to go and see their next concerts. And they changed their name. But I went in anyway. And uh, anyway, the Simple Minds were quite good. <laughs> at the time, and uh, they became very big. And just a few weeks later, there was another band who was supporting them called U2. Nobody knew. So I'd see them... And I was kind of into that sort of stuff. And then it was New Order gigs after that. And I was just a big gig goer as well as music buyer. Yeah. That, that was my real passion. I mean, I loved the football, but that was my real passion. The music that was, was spent. what I spent my time doing.
1: I want to do, talk about Celtic, actually, and the fact that you kind of started your footballing career there, but you were rejected by them. And I know you grew up a Celtic fan. And I was going to ask how it impacted your relationship, trialling for a club that you loved and then kind of being knocked back by them, whether it then damaged that relationship and damaged your fondness for that club. But it sounds like that that wouldn't have had an impact at all because your focus was elsewhere at the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely no impact at all. To give me the exact detail of it, I'd been playing for Celtic Boys Club, which is not Celtic Football Club, but I'd also been signed by Celtic Football Club as an s from There was a link between the two clubs. And at 16, the expectation was that they would, everyone thought because I'd been Player of the Year and scoring lots of goals, that I would be taken on. And all the players that had been Player of the Year before me, such as Charlie Nicholas and Roy Aitken and David Moyes, and Mm -hmm. there's millions of them, Tommy Barnes, all went on to play for Celtic, Paul McStay, but they didn't take me on. But there was no way that I would do anything other than keep on going and supporting them. And yes, I would, two weeks later, I'd been on the terraces in the jungle supporting my team. Absolutely no effect whatsoever in how I felt about the club. Not a moment's worth of bitterness. So there's no bitterness yet. I mean, it's a long story, but my team now is no longer Celtic. It's Hibernian. Yeah. I changed. I done the unthinkable. I changed. And um, I don't hate Celtic. There was these things happening that you know, with the, the bigotry that involves you know the, the West End of Scotland, mm. and that's not Celtic or Rangers. It's just the whole feeling, and I didn't want my children to you know, live through that. So uh, I kind of we upsticks, and uh, I was I was too. I was too mean to buy a new scarf, so I just chose this, <laughs> the green and white scarf. And I've had a lovely time there, but I have no bad feelings about Celtic at all. Didn't have then, don't have now. But it's, it was a very, very unusual time where people always expect you to have this bitterness. But you work long and hard to find bitterness anywhere in, in the book or in my personality because it's a bit self-indulgent that. And I don't really think I'm very self-indulgent. I find myself too ridiculous to, to take myself that seriously. <laughs>
1: What do you make of Celtic's current state of affairs as someone who used to be a fan? Obviously, you're no longer in that position. So from a neutral point of view, what do you think it's going to take much to get them back to the very top of Scottish football?
0: Uh, people are getting all uptight about it. I mean, they won a lot of trophies in a row and they had a, you know, Rangers come back and it's taken them a long time and they're on this roll just now. Celtic haven't disappeared. They'll be back. And I think it was needed. Celtic had had it too easy for too long. And I do think it was needed for Scottish football that there could be that challenge up the top because it can get boring it can get really boring you know and if you know who's going to win the league every year you kind of get fed up watching it It's it's not that case now Celtic will come back next year they might have a new manager a whole bunch of new players it might take a year it might take a few years but they'll be back up there challenging with Rangers and it'll be a very 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 exciting time for Scottish football and of course, the team in third place, Hibernian, hopefully we can have a wee push as well. But I think Scottish football has absolutely needed that. One of the nice things is there are good things happening in Scottish football just now as well. I spend most of my time working in England. All of my games I cover, 99% of the games I cover now are in England. But, you know, I'll be at the Scottish Cup final. I do the Scotland games for Radio 5 Live. I'm excited with the fact that there are still a good more than trickle of decent players coming through. You look at me, Billy Gilmore, down at Chelsea. And it's exciting times. I'll be honest with you, the Scotland v England game is looming large (laughs) for all of us. And if we could get anything out of that group and somehow squeeze our way through, that'd be amazing. And, And on top of all that, you know, Scotland, I am Scottish and I want the country to do well in football. And it's been a long time since we've had any success. But on a really personal level, Stevie Clark is one of my best mates. And I just want Stevie to, He's the best man for the job and I hope he's successful.
1: I want to come back to the European Championships in a moment and Scotland's chances there. Uh, but I was interested to read that The Accident of Footballer isn't your first book. It was a book you wrote in the mid-90s that was your first book called In My Head Sun, which yes. was about the mental health challenges that you felt personally as you reached the end of your footballing career, which looking at looking at it, it's quite ahead of its time. I mean, nowadays, mental health in sport and in football particularly, it's a bit of a buzz. There's a lot of attention on it. And finally, people are taking it seriously after dismissing it for a long, long time. So when you wrote this book in the 90s, did you feel like you were writing something that was pretty forward-thinking at the time?
0: Sadly, my life's been a bit like that. You think of the anti-racism stances that I was taking in 1983 and 84, and you look at it now and you're thinking, yeah what well kept you all <laughs> 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 in various other stances that I've you know, taken. I just didn't understand why everyone wasn't standing beside me shouting as loud as I was. You know, I was certainly by the time I co-wrote that book, I wrote my part and the sports psychiatrist, he wrote his part. And it was a debate. And my idea, it was a, a book many years ago called Life and How to Survive It by Professor Robin Skinner and John Cleese. And it was kind of quite high-minded in its way to look at these problems. They weren't always mine. There were some things what I seen around me. But you have to put on top of that. I was always by the often I was also by this time chairman of the PFA. Now, as chairman of the PFH, part of your, you know, position to make sure that you look out for, you know, difficulties that the players are having. Um, so I was acutely aware of some of the difficulties and that's why I wanted to, to look into it and discuss it and you know, be quite open about it all. I was quite austere in those days, <laughs> quite earnest. In those days and maybe that was you know I'd write it differently now and this book is you know it's not cold written it's just written completely by myself and I think it's it's kind of a lot more fun <laughs> I'll say that it was a lot more fun right? this one that one was just a season and it was drilling deep but this one is an overview of looking back and being able to you know use hindsight as well as not rewriting certainly not rewriting because one of the things I thought was very important within the writing definitely not to reevaluate what you thought then by the standards of today—that's too easy. I wanted to say, "Look, this is what it felt like then, and these are the reasons why it felt that, like, and this is why people acted that way then." There's a kind of lot of rewriting of history by people who, you know, see light in a different light now because they have matured and moved on. I wanted to tell people not necessarily how I felt, but how football felt back then, and it's strangely enlightening. One of the there's a whole chapter in a book about homophobia. Now, I was shouting against that back then. (laughs) Whereas, you look at it now, we've not even got there yet. So, that was an interesting book to write. I have to say, I absolutely have had a lot more pleasure at writing this one, because apart from anything else, there's a lot of fun in it. There's a lot of joy in it. You know, most of the books you'll read now, it's about, oh, my journey, and the terrible things that happened to me, and it's awful, and, you know, that's a hook to the book. I'm sorry you're not going to get that much in this one, because I was having a ball. (laughs) (laughs) I had difficult times, but no, it's not about that. To be honest, that comes next. Part two, uh, the second part of the book, which uh, I have actually written, is finished. That has got that sort of stuff in it. And I did go through the, those more difficult times in the second part of my career, latter parts of my life. But this one, no, it's a kind of a moment, or I say a moment, but it's all the way up until I'm the age of 26. I think it's an insight. And it's not just to people who are watching football at time. Younger people now who think they know what football is all about, it's a kind of interesting historical document to go. And I think they'll say, well, you mean you were Chelsea's player of the year. You were earning 180 quid a week. Your rent was 100. Your tax was 60. You had 20 quid a week left. (laughs) And you were were Chelsea's player of the year. Thank God for the bonuses. That's all (laughs) I can say. And it's interesting to see. And there's no bitterness in it. You mentioned Stanley Matthews earlier on. I did so much better than him financially. So I have nothing to complain about.
1: Was there an element, a part of the book, that you were tempted to maybe rewrite a little bit, that you you felt maybe awkward including, or you wanted to reframe in a slightly different way, but you had to kind of overcome those temptations in creating it?
0: Do you know, it's a a brilliant question. That is a fabulous question. It's one of the best questions I've been asked. And the reason why it's it's the unexpected answer, no. And the reason why it's no is I don't mind putting myself in a an unflattering light because I kind of laugh at myself Mm. Um, I hope I generally behave quite well most of the time but if something's unflattering in me don't worry I'll laugh at it you go online and type my name in the first thing that will come up is a penalty I missed I might have scored 150 goals in my career and created hundreds the first thing you'll see is a complete and utter disaster of a penalty kick. <laughs> and I'm really happy to write about it. And I wrote about that, and, and it was fun writing about it because people do take themselves too seriously. And one of my heroes is a guy called Humphrey Littleton, who's a, a jazz player but also was anchor man in a, a comedy called... Uh, I'm sorry, I haven't played in Radio 4. And he used to say, whatever happens in this life, keep an iron grip on the ability to be silly because... <laughs> Your soul gets dried, he's called desiccated. You know, and another friend of mine, a girl called Heather O'Reilly, she's a very, very famous American soccer player, world famous American soccer player. And we were chatting recently, and she's read the book, and she says, You don't take much too seriously. And, and I said, You know, it's, you know it's, you're only here for a short time, you've got as much joy out of it as possible. And she said a brilliant line, she goes, Yeah, none of us are getting out of this alive. <laughs> That is brilliant. I love that. Like, why did you not say to me before I wrote the book, I've <laughs> stolen it. So I will laugh at myself and I will see the negative things in myself. Maybe the most important thing which is related to that question is, there's people I disagreed with in the game. There's people that I didn't get on with in the game. I will tell you why, but I will also understand their position. And I will also take the time to get their position. And I think that's how you learn in life. And that's how you grow you don't get a set of ideas and just stick by them. You listen to people. You learn about other people's point of view and why they have that point of view. And I've kind of always been a bit like that. I really I have always been like that. And uh, there's a lot of stuff. And one of the people I didn't get on was a guy called David Speedy, who was one of the three of us who were in the three-pronged attack at Chelsea. Who, In mm. our time, we were very famous. And we scored a lot of goals and we were very successful. All of us became internationals quite quickly. But Steve Speedy and I didn't get on. But I didn't hide that fact. But I, and I absolutely wrote about it. But also wrote about the fact that I made the efforts, big efforts, to find out why he wants the way he wants. And in the end, I understood him. I wouldn't say he was ever my best mate, but I understood him. Mm-hmm. I, I took the time to understand him. So, did I want to change anything? Nah, I just wanted to be straight.
1: I promise we talk about Scotland before I let you go, so talk to me about the Euros that's just round the corner now. I won't ask you what you make of the job Steve Clarke's done, as he's your mate, and I'm not <laughs> sure you'd be able to give me an honest answer. But I mean, I think the general consensus is he's done a really good job with that Scotland squad. And obviously being at the European Championships is an achievement in itself, but what can Scotland do once they get there? Let's put the England-Scotland game to the side, because I think all bets are off for that one anyway. It's just going to be a battle. But can Scotland get out of the group? Then what can they do beyond that?
0: I'm actually surprised they actually managed to get this far, because the limitations of the quality we have in the squad. Just be honest about it. Scotland, for a long time, hasn't qualified for competitions. There's a reason for that. It's not because we didn't have a good manager. It's because we didn't have enough good players. Period. That's it. So don't look for excuses. The fact that we've got this far is we were on the edge and it was a battle and we scraped through. And part of it was, you know, the team spirit. Part of it was the, the perfect management of players from Clarkey, because he maximised the potential of a group, which is not world-class, but a great team spirit. He has to get the very, very best out of them for inter- every minute of every single game. And that's hard to keep on doing it because he's done it all the way till here. Can they get out of the group? Yes. But they need to keep on doing that again. And they need to get lucky as well. And I'll be supporting them all the way. I want them to do it. But I actually think he's won a watch and we've, we've won by getting there. But that's not how we'll feel when we're there. I was in European Championships in 92. And our group was a really easy one. Germany, the world champions. The Netherlands, the European champions. And Russia. No, <laughs> no <CIS> problem. <laughs> as we were called then. And we had players like Van Basten and Hula. And I was playing against Andreas Bremer, who was the most famous fullback in the world at the time. But we didn't think oh, we're going to get hammered. We thought, we're going to have a go. And we came very close, very, very close. So am I going to write off the chances of this group? Absolutely not. We've got a chance, but we're outsiders.
1: When you're going into that kind of tournament, who do you want to play in the group stages? And I'm thinking of not necessarily Scotland in this scenario, maybe a team like North Macedonia, who are qualifying for a major tournament for the very first time. But do you want to play the legends of the game? So going into this tournament, would you want to be facing your Ronaldos or the players of that ilk or do you want to play the teams that you feel like you've got more of an opportunity against if you're a professional player going into this kind of circumstance for the first time?
0: I would say if you were a good enough professional player you couldn't care less. Put them in front of me I'm going to be better than you. Does that sound terribly arrogant? If it does I'm, I'm, I'm sorry because that's the way you need to think mm. and I don't think I'm arrogant in any other part of my life but if you put me on a football field and I'm playing against the best fullback in the world which I often was it's Stuart Pierce, Kenny Sanson before him, beat Andreas Bremer. I don't care. I think I'm better than you. I really do, as soon as I'm on that piece of grass. So you don't care who's stuck in front of you. they are there to be beaten. And there is a real joy if you actually manage to beat one of the very, very biggest teams. But it's hard, you know, and you need everyone to have exactly the same mindset. And I don't just mean the players. I mean the management. They have to believe in it as well. So, you know, who do you want? Well, anyone just as long as we can be given the chance to have a go and try and beat them. And if Scotland have that attitude, I remember we used to go out for games and for Scotland and the manager, Craig Brown or Andy Roxburgh, would give us this big technical team talk and maybe be a wee bit worried about the opposition because they were packed full of world-class players. And then they'd walk out of the room and we'd all say, oh, get lost, let's have a go at them. <laughs> <laughs> we really did say that. We just felt that way. Don't hold us back. And I think maybe we were held back a wee bit, my group, because the players in my team—I was playing for Chelsea never, and Everton. We were playing against Liverpool. We're Liverpool players in the team. That was best teams in the world. Mm. Why would we be worried about anyone else? And that was our attitude, and that was the only attitude to have. Now we never got through the group stages, and no Scotland team ever has. But it doesn't mean that you won't. It's not always the very best team in history that does the best things. You need to have things falling in your your path and using that luck and using that situation when you can and that's what Scotland have to do. So you don't care who it is, they're there, they're in front of you. You got to do them. You can tell my Glaswegian accent's coming back when I'm talking about it, can you?
1: <laughs> the lines like "We got to do them,"
0: yeah, <laughs> you can hear yeah, it. it just, I never, phrases I never use except when I'm talking about <laughs> Scotland and the, it comes back out. Um, but yeah, that's how we feel about it. And I mean, I'm going to be at all the games, I'm going to be at all Scotland's games. I'm fortunate enough to be covering them for um, the BBC. And I'm going to try so hard to be fair and not be biased in any way, but I will fail in the England game. I can tell you now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Before you go, one final question. Obviously, you've spent this time going back over your career, reading your diaries, reminding yourselves of these moments. Having done that, is there one point from your entire footballing career where you close your eyes and instantly you feel the way you felt at that time? You can smell the same smells, you can hear the same things. Something that's so ingrained from being so important that you, you'll never be able to forget that one moment? God, you ask
0: good questions. And, are, and I'm, I'll just be straight. I'll always tell you an honest answer. Do you know, it's, it's actually days in early spring when the weather's changing. And it's just getting back to you, can feel smell the smell of spring in the air. And it wasn't necessarily when I was a professional, it was any time in my life from the age of five, six, seven onwards. And I felt all the way through my professional career getting up in the morning, smelling the air, knowing you've got game in the afternoon, thinking, I cannot wait to get out of there. And that is the most brilliant feeling. You almost can't explain how much of a dopamine hit it is. Mm. Of it's there'll be smell of fresh grass or being cut or something like that, you know. And you just think, I want to be out there playing football. This is just a perfect day for football. I'll be honest with you, I'm still feeling that again. Not that often, but you will go to a game and maybe I'll turn up. And this year's been strange because I've been in the stadiums and there's not been any fans. I've seen I've been in a lot of games this season, and you kind of feel those, you get those smells and those kind of feelings every now and again. It's not every game, and it's a lovely, lovely. It's not even memory, it's a feeling. And it's a brilliant one to have. And there is a bit of you that thinks, did I really do that? Did that really happen? Uh, Well, I've written it down in the book now, so it must (laughs) have.
1: Pat, absolutely a pleasure to speak to you I think just spending half an hour in your company I can 100 percent understood what you said at the beginning of the interview saying you're wired slightly differently to other <laughs> professional footballers because you just you speak with the same passion but you just talk about stuff in a completely different way and it's really refreshing to hear so good luck with the book I look forward to reading it and really appreciate your time yeah, pleasure Thanks for listening to this episode of Football Stories from the Sports Social Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed Season 2 and you've listened to all the episodes in Season 2, why not go back to Season 1 and listen to some of the untold stories from off the pitch? And if you happen to be a sport content creator, if you've got your own podcast, why not come and join the Sports Social Podcast Network. Find more information or find your next favourite sport podcast by searching Sports Social Podcast Network. Find more great shows or join the team at sport-social.co.uk.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>